The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. We've been exploring in this middle part of Job these three cycles of conversations that happen between Job and his friends. And in a way, you could argue that the cycle, although the last cycle there goes to chapter 27, some have made the argument that it extends all the way to chapter 31. Uh, And we left off in chapter 27 with Job adamantly clinging to his innocence and complains that God has denied him justice that he deserves. In Job 27, verses 2 to 6, we found these words, As surely as God lives, who has denied me justice, the Almighty who has made my life bitter, as long as I have life within me, the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not say anything wicked, and my tongues will not utter lies. I will never admit you are in the right till I die. I will not deny my integrity. I will maintain my innocence and never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. And so this is Job's clinging to his innocence and saying, I have done nothing wrong here to deserve the suffering that is happening in my life. And then when you jump from chapter 27 into chapter 29, you see basically just the continuation of Job saying the same kind of things. And when you start into chapter 29, he begins to nostalgically remember how good his life once was in a better season of his life before the season of suffering entered. So starting in verses 2, uh, going to 5 in Job 29, it says, how, long for, how I long for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me. When his lamp shone on my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house, when the Almighty was still with me, and my children were around me. Whatever problems that Job may have with his theology, it's hard not to sympathize with him when you read verses like this, isn't it? To feel the depth of his pain that he is experiencing. I remember the days when God was my friend and we were together. And he's saying, in essence, those days are no more. And then he continues to assert his righteousness, starting in verse 14. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. But then Job, in essence, says, what good was any of that righteousness? What does any of that righteousness do for me now in my present suffering? In chapter 30, verse 1, and then verse 9 to 10, it says, but now they mock me, men younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to put with my sheepdogs. And now these young men mock me in song. I have become a byword among them. They detest me and keep their distance. They do not hesitate to spit in my face. Job is saying, these young punks who are now treating me like this, like I'm garbage, their fathers I would have considered at one time in my life not even worthy to be with my sheepdogs, and yet they are mocking me now because of my suffering. But what is far more painful to Job than any of these things is the way he now believes God views him. 
In chapter 30, verse 20 to 21, it says, I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly with the might of your hand. You attack me. And then in chapter 31, Job will make one last appeal to this principle of retribution, which is that the righteous will be blessed and the wicked will be punished. He says in chapter 31, verses 1 through 8 in the verse 35, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. For what is our lot from God above, our heritage from the Almighty on high? Is it not ruin for the wicked? Disaster for those who do wrong. Does he not see my ways and count my every step? If I have walked with falsehood or my foot had hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in honest scales and he will know that I am blameless. If my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes, or if my hands have been defiled, then may others eat what I have sown and may my crops be uprooted. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. And you can hear the mic drop as Job walks away. Job's argument is very straightforward. I have done nothing wrong to deserve what's happening in my life right now. And so he says, let me stand trial before God. And if I am found guilty... I will gladly bear this punishment. But if I am innocent, then God clear my name from these false accusations that are being hurled at me. And then this chapter closes with this line. The words of Job are ended. That's how it ends. The words of Job are ended. Now, my focus today is going to be on chapter 28, but I first want to step back and summarize what we've learned about both Job and his friends. First, I want to say a word about Job's friends. It is evident from their speeches that Job's friends have the outward appearance of religiosity, but their faith lacks any real substance. All they offer Job are a bunch of self-righteous platitudes about God and his ways, and they don't really understand what Job is going through. In their simplistic understanding of God's justice, it's simple. Good people get rewarded and bad people get punished. And because of that, they've come to the wrong conclusion about Job. And they say, you are being punished because of some secret sin in your life that you refuse to acknowledge. And so they're, and, and not only that, but their motivation for urging Job to repent is so that the good life that he once knew would be restored to him. And that only affirms what the Satan had said to God. They only follow you because of the rewards that you dangle in front of them. That is why people are righteous. And there is no empathy or any real effort to understand the complexity of the situation that Job is facing. Instead, they weaponize their theology to attack Job over and over again. In their world, everything is black and white. There is no struggle. There is no nuance here. They have no doubt in their minds that they see the world clearly and that they are always on God's side. And I want to say this. Sadly, I think this kind of simplistic, distorted faith is all too common even in the church today. 
Many of us are so quick to throw around Bible verses for every occasion without any deeper reflection of what God may be doing in our broken world. I'll be honest, as a pastor, I have felt the same pressure when I counsel a church member who is going through some deep moment of pain to offer some glib words of encouragement or comfort to them. Some Bible verse that will give them some hope that God is still good in all of this. And God is still good. And it's great when we can say, praise the Lord, or God is good when we are struggling. But are those statements coming from a place of real faith? Or do we just say them as knee-jerk reactions? Because we know that's what God wants to hear from us. It makes me think about even how we teach our kids in church how we very selectively choose parts of the Bible that affirm the things we want them to know about God. And so we tell them stories about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who went into that furnace but were not harmed by that fire. And then our kids wonder where God is when he doesn't deliver them from a trial. And what about Hebrews 11 that talks about the faithful who because of their faith suffered imprisonment and persecution and torture. When I talk about this idea of Sunday school faith, listen, these truths are real. These promises of God are real. But the world in which we live is far more complex than these simplistic slogans that we can rally around. Where does God fit into this theology of suffering? when we experience pain in our life. That is not the faith of Job's friends. They just throw out these Christian mottos so glibly and don't understand the complexity of the world in which we live. And the truth is, Job was once in that same camp with his friends. In Eliphaz's first speech, he confronts Job with these words in chapter 4, verse 3 to 5. Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees, but now trouble comes to you and you are discouraged. It strikes you and you are dismayed. What Eliphaz is saying was, boy, Job, you had such great words of wisdom for people when they were suffering, and you were the wise sage who knew just the right Bible verses to point them to, but now that you are suffering and the tables are turned on you, where is your faith? Where is your comfort? It was a simpler time for Job when life unfolded just as Job expected. And in those days, it was easy for Job to play the wise sage. But now that he finds himself on the receiving end of that same advice from his friends, what Eliphaz is accusing him of is, you are unwilling to accept the same medicine that you gave to other people. And the truth is, Job's suffering has changed him. It's as if the scales have fallen off of his eyes, and now he can truly see not everything in black and white, but now in shades of gray. In the words of the famous hymn, I once was blind, but now I see. Here's the thing. When life is going great, you have the luxury of a sloppy and simplistic theology, don't you? After all, it doesn't really matter what the true explanation is for a great life, does it? Who cares? Life is great. I have nothing to complain about. But pain, 
forces us into deeper questions about God and his ways. I want to say this. Even though the scales have fallen off of Job's eyes, it doesn't mean he's in a much better place than his friends, does it? Job knows enough to understand that his previous view of God was too simplistic, even distorted, but he doesn't know where to find deeper answers to his faith struggle. In other words, he doesn't have an alternative explanation that can help him make sense of his suffering. Job is, in essence, in free fall. And part of the problem is he is stuck on this issue of justice, and he can't get past it. I am being treated unfairly. This is unjust. Well, this brings us to chapter 28. And most Old Testament scholars would argue this is the major turning point in the book of Job. It is a very important chapter in the book. And some believe that these are Job's words that he is speaking. And you can understand why, because after all, chapter 26 and 27 is an extended speech from Job, as well as chapter 29 through 31. That is Job's speech as well. And sandwiched in between it is chapter 28. So it would make sense that chapter 28 is Job's words as well. However, I think a stronger case is made that those, this isn't Job's words in chapter 28 but rather a narrator inserting himself into the story to comment on what's happening here. Why do I argue that? Because if you go to the next slide, the tone is totally different. Chapter 26 and 27, as well as 29 through 31, have a consistent arc of basically Job complaining to God that God is not fair and that he is innocent. But when you look at chapter 28, it's not about that at all. It is about this topic of wisdom. And I want to take a look at that right now. In chapter 28, look at what it says at the beginning words. There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken out, taken from the earth, and copper is smelted from ore. Mortals put an end to the darkness. They search out the furthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from human dwellings, they cut a shaft in places untouched by human feet. Far from other people, they dangle and sway. The earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Lapis lazuli comes from its rocks. And its dust contains nuggets of gold. People assault the flinty rock with their hands and lay bare the roots of the mountains. They tunnel through the rock. Their eyes see all its treasures. They search the sources of the rivers and bring hidden things to light. I don't know if you can make sense of this, but what the author is, what this narrator is basically saying is he's marveling at the ingenuity of the human spirit. That, the, that we are able to dig into the depths of the earth and mine for these precious metals and stones. And then even once you mine it, I don't know if you've ever seen what dust looks like when you mine it. It just looks like dirt. It just looks like rock. It's not until you actually refine it and then you extract the gold from it that you can see what a treasure you've dug up. And what this author of chapter 28 is saying is, it's amazing how people discovered this, isn't it? The thought of digging deep into the ground to find something like gold or silver, or precious stones. How did people first learn to do this? And yet, despite all of our intelligence, what he goes on to say is, we're totally lost 
when it comes to the matter of wisdom. Continues and says, but where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me. The sea says it is not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed out in silver. Where does then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds in the sky. What he's saying is this. None of us has a clue where to find wisdom. Not only that, but the deeper problem he's pointing to is we don't understand its value either. We will go through extraordinary measures to dig into the earth to extract silver and gold. But is anyone even looking for wisdom? Does it even matter to anyone? And I think what he's saying is is this, in essence. You can be smart about a lot of things but utterly stupid when it comes to wisdom. Talking about a life well-lived, we have no idea where to find that wisdom. And history is filled with men and women who accomplished amazing things and showed incredible brilliance and yet utterly lacked any sense of wisdom. Karl Marx, you guys know who he is? He's the founder of communism self-proclaimed defender of the working class, wrote amazing books about this and changed the world. And yet he exploited his maid and paid her an embarrassingly low wage himself. And then, in fact, he impregnated that maid and then forced her to give up that baby. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and his humanistic philosophies had an enormous influence on the French Revolution. And his teachings on the development of personal character shape our educational theories to this very day. And yet, he fathered four illegitimate children and abandoned every one of them. The last one, Henrik Ibsen, brilliant playwright, publicly fought for the betterment of women in his generation, and yet in his private life demonstrated a vicious hatred of them. I think what the Bible is telling us is that with our amazing and incredible minds, we can be brilliant and intelligent about so many things, and yet at the same time be so unwise about how we ultimately end up living our lives. And when it comes to Job and his friends, they don't understand that wisdom either. Job's friends live in this smug, self-righteous world of simplistic answers, spewing meaningless platitudes. And they utterly lack an understanding of God's ways. But Job is stuck on this issue of justice. He just can't get past the fact that he feels he doesn't deserve what's happening in his life. And he is completely consumed with proving his innocence. And through his pain, he comes to realize that he needs deeper answers to life, but he doesn't know where to find them. And the poem will claim that God alone is the source of wisdom. It ends with these lines. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. 
and to shun evil is understanding. Now, these last words about God's care over his creation, God himself is going to echo a lot of these same thoughts. So I'm not going to dwell on those words because we're going to spend some time unpacking that when we get to God's speech himself. I just want to draw your attention today to, to the truth that the only way that we find wisdom in this life is through the help and the guidance of God himself. And what that requires is the humility and the surrender to say, I need that in my life. Why do I say that? Because I think inside every one of us is the belief that I know what is best for my life. And I don't need an authority figure or somebody else to tell me what my life should be about. I think about all the counseling I've done over the years as a pastor. And sometimes, you know, what I realized is this. People do not come to me unless their life is in crisis. Okay, that's what I realized. Is you are not going to seek out your pastor until your life is almost falling apart. Okay? And it's at that point maybe you're going to say, I need some help here. And maybe you come to me because you think, well, Pastor Steve probably knows the Bible better than I do. And he went to seminary and he's counseled a lot of people. But here is the thing. You may give me credit for all of that, but the moment I tell you something that you don't want to hear, who are you going to listen to? Very high likelihood you're going to walk out of my office that they disappointed and said, I thought he was a smart guy. But clearly, I know better than him because he's not telling me what I want to hear, what I know to be the truth about my life. Listen. For us, we always want the answers. Why is this happening? What is going on? But when the Bible talks about trusting God in his wisdom, the point of that trust is when we don't understand what's happening, we need to trust. If you understood everything, then trust is not necessary, is it? But it is precisely because we cannot make sense of so much of what happens in our life that trusting in God is needed. This is my daughter, Bethany. This is when she was pretty little, and I share that picture because the story I want to share comes from that time in her life. At that time, she was a student at Christian Heritage Academy, CHA, and she was sent home from school with pink eye this day. Not this day of the picture, because her eyes are fine in that picture. I got home from work, uh, and um, I looked at her eye. It was her left eye, and it was just horrible. It was just inflamed and red and goopy, and it was really gross. <laughs> and so I ended up on my way home stopping by the pharmacy and picking up some eye drops, some antibiotics to put into her eye. And I told her to lay down, and she did, and I put the first dose of the drops into her eyes, and she screamed bloody murder because when your eye is that inflamed, those eye drops hurt like crazy, and it just burned her eyes. And so a few hours rolls around, and I need to put another dose in her eyes, and she is running away from me now. She is saying, no way are you going to put that medicine in my eye again. In her little mind, she doesn't understand why her father would torture her like this. She can't comprehend that this is necessary for her. And so I, I literally talked with her for an hour. 
begging her, trying to explain the medical science behind it. She's just saying, no, 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 no more, no more. And my wife, Betty, had not come home from work yet. And I realized that it could get really ugly really fast, where we may get to the point where we have to physically hold her down and peel open her eye and drop that medicine into her eye to get her better. And that thought of doing that was so horrible to me. I go, I do not want to get to that place where we have to do that to her. Well, after talking with her some more, she finally agreed to let, her, let us put those drops into her eye. And it still hurt like the Dickens. It hurt a lot. But why did she let us put that medicine into her eye? She did it because ultimately she didn't understand why she was being tortured like this, but she just simply had to trust us as her parents that we cared about her and would do nothing to cause harm to her, but loved her. And as a result of that love, she needed to take that medicine. And I think that is the nature of the wisdom that God is inviting us to. Your way is going to seem like the logical way. Your wisdom is going to sound like the way that you should go. But it's not until there is that moment of surrender in our lives that says God's ways, not my ways, that we take the first steps into true wisdom. The 1994 movie Forrest Gump follows the life of this man who lived just one amazing accident of luck after another. And as a result, ends up living this remarkable, extraordinary life. And he lived this life despite the fact that, to put it politely, he was slow-witted or dim-witted, right? Um, he's of below-average intelligence. Something is wrong in his mental capacities. Normally, a narrator of a story stands in an almost godlike position, knowing and seeing everything. But what's unique about this film, Forrest Gump, is that it is narrated entirely from Forrest's own limited and distorted childlike understanding of the world. Forrest ends up playing football for Alabama, and they win the championship. And because of that, he has an opportunity to meet President John F. Kennedy at the White House. But what he says about that experience at the White House is, now, the real good thing about meeting the president of the United States is the food. They put you in this little room with just about anything you want to eat or drink. I must have drank me about 15 Dr. Peppers, okay? And that's the visit to the White House through the eyes of Forrest Gump. Because of Forrest Gump's limited understanding of things, he is what in literary tone, terms is known as an unreliable narrator. You cannot trust everything that he's saying. As a result, as the viewer, as the audience, you're forced to look beyond what the narrator is saying to the clues of the movie itself to understand the full story of what's going on in his life. And this is particularly true of Forrest's relationship with his childhood sweetheart, Jenny. He has no 
clue of the abuse that she is suffering under the hands of her alcoholic father. She regularly sneaks out of the house at night and sleeps over at Forrest's house. And all Forrest says is, I think she did that because she's afraid of her grandma's dog because the dog is mean. And Jenny's brokenness from that abuse will drive her into the arms of one abusive boyfriend after another. And Forrest and Jenny are on two totally separate journeys into adulthood, although their paths will repeatedly cross over the years. One day as adults, they are walking by her childhood home and Jenny throws rocks at it and then collapses in tears. And Forrest still cannot fully comprehend what's going on here. Not long after that day, Forrest asks Jenny to marry him, but she rejects him. And she tells Forrest this, you don't want to marry me. You don't want to marry me. And Forrest replies, why don't you love me, Jenny? I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. You see, Forrest thinks the issue is his intelligence. That's why Jenny won't marry him. But what he doesn't understand is that Jenny won't marry him because she thinks of herself as damaged goods. You don't want to marry me, Forrest. You don't know the baggage I carry in my life. And sadly, as the audience, we're able to understand so much more about what's going on in Forrest's life than himself. Because in narrating his own story, he doesn't understand the half of what's going on in his life. And I share this movie with you because I wonder, could the same be true of our lives as well? I want to ask you this as I close my message. How reliable a narrator are you for the story of your own life? Because whether you realize it or not, you're telling a story in your own head, the story of your life. And I wonder, who are the heroes in your story? Who are the villains in your story? Is your story a tragedy? Is it a comedy? Is it an epic adventure or a mystery? We just had a men's and a women's retreat in which a lot of the focus was us telling our stories to one another. How would you tell the story of your life? Because when we look at the story of Job, we see that Job is stuck. He can't move forward because the story that he is telling of his own life is crippling him. And what this message of chapter 28 is saying is, you need the wisdom of God. Will you have the humility and the brokenness to allow God to narrate a different story for your life? Maybe the story that you're telling is not nearly as accurate as you think it is. And wisdom says, let me begin with God and let him have the first word in my life. Let's pray.
As we close out our service today, I want to invite you just to a brief moment of prayer and reflection to think about your life. Whether you're a junior high or a high school kid or you're in your 50s or 60s in this room, I think the truth is um, we're all telling a story of our lives. And maybe you assume, of course, I am the only one fit to narrate my story because I'm the only one who's been living it out. But not so fast. Maybe the truth is there are some distortions in the way that you see things that don't accurately reflect reality. And maybe like Job, you're just stuck on certain things that you just can't get by. Life is unfair. You are a victim and you don't deserve what's happened to you. Why did I have to have the parents that I did? I didn't deserve that. Why does nobody understand what I'm going through? I don't know. What are the narratives locked in your head? But what the Bible says is you don't even take the first steps of wisdom until you realize that God should have the loudest voice in that room and give the opportunity to help you to understand your own story. And maybe your story, frankly, confuses you and says it makes no sense to me at all. I don't get why my life is unfolding like this. Maybe the place for you to start is just a simple heart of surrender that says, God, um, when I really think about it, maybe I am that unreliable narrator to my own biography. And God, would you take the pen and would you write a story for me of my life and how you see it through your all-knowing and all-powerful eyes? I think that's the starting point of wisdom is to say, God, help me to understand because I don't understand what I'm going through. Would you just pray that simple prayer of surrender right now before God? And then in a moment, I'm going to invite you to come to the Lord's table and we're going to take communion together as the family of God. But let's just come to God right now in a brief moment of prayer. Let's pray.